Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. You are listening to episode number 13 of the Gateworld Podcast. Thanks for joining us once again for this week's show. Today, David and I are talking about First Contact, the first half of the mid-season two-parter for Stargate Atlantis. We'll also give you a preview of our upcoming interview with actor Tony Amendola, who plays Braytac on Stargate SG-1. And of course, there's lots of Stargate news, features, and listener mail. One shot stuns them, two shots kills them, three shots... Wait, what kind of a sick person shoots at dead bodies? The GateWorld Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and joining me on the podcast, yet again, David Reed. You just got back from vacation. Yeah, Did and you I'm happy to be back. Get a little relaxed and rested? Uh, yeah, I spent a few hours on the beach, I spent several hours in the sh- clothing stores, and uh, uh, I just basically chilled, you know? I watched First Contact, I paid a visit to a Krispy Kreme, you know? I've been on a, I've been on a real, real strict diet, I've, uh, I've lost 60 pounds. So um, I decided to treat myself while I was in uh, while I was in Florida. So That's it was awesome. it was really nice. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, I'm glad to be back. Aside from the fact that it's a very lucky number, this particular podcast. Yeah, number thirteen. Hopefully, you're all rested up and ready to charge into the back half of season five. Yes, it's gonna be good. You know, sometime in between. The, the time that we recorded the last podcast and the time that we posted it, we decided that we were actually going to take last week off. So there was no new podcast last week. David went on vacation, and I had a big test to study for. How'd your test go? The test, uh, thank you for asking, uh, was on Friday, and it went very well. I was very pleased right. with my score. So now I get to blaze into PhD applications this fall. That's one voyage that I don't think I'm planning on taking, but (laughs) anyway, that's a discussion for another podcast. Stargate News. Here are your headlines from GateWorld for October 7th, 2008. The identity of the new alien race, featured in the mid-season two-parter First Contact and The Lost Tribe, has been revealed. We won't spill the beans here in the podcast until The Lost Tribe airs this week, but the Sci-Fi Channel has released a promo clip from this Friday's episode, in which the alien warriors reveal their secret identity to Daniel Jackson. Watch the clip now at GateWorld if you can't wait until Friday night to find out. Then call the GateWorld podcast hotline and tell us what you think. I cannot believe that they aired that. I was really surprised, because you and I had heard that this was coming several months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, we've known for six months. I mean, you know, this, so it's, this is the big, the big spoiler of the year. This is the turning point of the year. And you know, and obviously, it's, it in a preview. It's nice that they didn't put it in their on-air commercial. This was a clip. Um, this was a clip that just showed up on the internet that that was tagged Sci-Fi Channel, uh, and it looks like yeah. some of the clips that they released for season four. So it was apparently from them, but uh, it's not on their site. Uh, we have mm-hmm. it on GateWorld now from YouTube. But uh, mm-hmm. I was. It's I not was even finished. Shocked. It doesn't have sound effects. It doesn't have sound effects. It doesn't have music. Yeah, and they did that you know? with some of the season four clips that we got last last year that were released by the network. They're they're from like an unfinished cut of the episode. I saw it, and I, I wish I hadn't. But you know, I I, I was not going to wait for two weeks, even though I knew what was under the suit. Well, we'll talk lots and lots about that in next week's podcast. For those still following the ratings news for Stargate Atlantis, here's your recap. 
Episode 6, The Shrine, earned a 1.2 average household rating on August 22nd. Whispers lost a sliver of a point with a 1.1 rating after that Labor Day weekend break. And the idea of Taylor dressed as a wraith brought viewers back for the Queen. That episode earned a 1.3, which ties the season high set by Search and Rescue and the Daedalus Variations. Now remember, these are live plus same-day ratings, and don't include DVR-delayed viewing. Sci-Fi Channel reported last week that Atlantis has averaged just below 2 million viewers so far this season. That's up 13% from Season 4's run last fall. Sci-Fi Channel has confirmed that it will air the two SG-1 movies, The Ark of Truth and Continuum. For those fans who haven't picked up the DVDs yet, you're in for a real treat. The Ark of Truth will provide that much-needed resolution to the Ori storyline, and Continuum is a really fun adventure in which Ball uses time itself against Earth and the SG-1 team. Both films will air on the cable channel in spring 2009. The third SG-1 movie and the first Atlantis movie will film at about the same time in 2009, according to actress Amanda Tapping. Amanda talked to reporters at a special press event in Colorado and said that she plans to reprise her role of Colonel Samantha Carter in SG-1's next outing. She said that rumor has it that the SG-1 movie will shoot in late spring or early summer of next year. Of course, MGM has yet to officially confirm that the SG-1 movie has been given a green light. Stay tuned to GateWorld and this podcast for the very latest. Well, if they're going to shoot in spring or summer... That probably means that we won't see the film until late 2010 or maybe early 2011. It would be a shame if uh, the visual effects and post-production and everything really took that long. Uh, it's not that. It's it's the advertising campaign. They have yeah. to have at least six months to properly advertise the film. Well, it's curious. If they do shoot at the same time, the, the SG-1 and Atlantis movies, uh, Sci-Fi has said that they want to get that Atlantis movie up on the air during 2009 sometime. And then it goes to DVD, if I understand it correctly? I think it's going to work like like Razor, the Battlestar Galactica movie, uh-huh. where it airs first and then shows up on DVD within a week or two. Okay. Gateworld Features. The podcast may have taken a vacation last week, but Gateworld's interviews didn't. Believe me. Head over to the site <laughs> for new interviews with Sabine C. Bauer and Barry Campbell. Sabine is author of SG-1 and Atlantis novels for Fandemonium, having written the novels Trial by Fire, Survival of the Fittest, and the new Atlantis story Mirror Mirror. We sat down with her at GateCon for a very special video interview. We also visited with Barry Campbell, the man who made the Arctic shots and Stargate Continuum happen. Barry is the head of operations at the Navy's Arctic Submarine Laboratory and invited the crew to the Atlas Ice Station north of Alaska. In our audio interview, Barry discusses the process of negotiating to get a skeleton Stargate crew to the Arctic, his respect for the team during their production shoot, and much more. Visit GateWorld now or subscribe to the GateWorld Interviews podcast on iTunes. I was actually editing Barry's interview during the vice presidential debates. (laughs) It was a real trip, listening to my dad shout and then trying to edit Barry, so... I'm so thrilled that we got to talk with this man, you know, and it's a shame. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any interviews of him, although admittedly I don't check everywhere. But, uh, you know, I I wonder sometimes if we're like, I don't know. know, It's it's a shame. We spend so much of our time uh, obviously doing interviews with main cast members, and it's so cool, I think, when we can, can get some of these guys who have a smaller role to play, but it's... It's pivotal, and it's part of Stargate history. 
Yeah, and mark our words, more of the uh, folks who are not always front and center, more of their interviews are heading your way. Yeah. Our newest interview now on the site is with actor Alexis Cruz. He played Skara on Stargate SG-1, and of course he's been a part of the franchise going all the way back to the original 1994 film. Here's a clip. Don and I talked a lot about acting in general, because Don was an acting teacher. He, he taught acting, and, uh, and I've done my fair share as well of, of that, not as much as, as him, and not to, to his degree of expertise, which is what was so exciting about talking to him. And mostly him and I, that was our, our common ground. And we had like, like really long, not just like a little passing chit-chat, but we would sit down at the bar and have you know intense actor-to-actor conversations about the craft and, and all of our, the different techniques and knowledges that go into it. And, uh, and it was a pretty unique um, relationship that I had with him in particular on, on that point, on that ground, and, and I'm going to miss that. If you're looking for that perfect shot from your favorite scene in Stargate Continuum, just point your browser to the Stargate Image Galleries at GateWorld. We've just added the Continuum Screen Captures collection with a shocking 3,300 high-quality pics from the new SG-1 movie. Visit StargateGallery.com now to check it out. And coming up this week is a new interview with Braytac actor Tony Amendola. Chad Colvin chatted with Tony about his work in 10 years of Stargate SG-1, and especially about Braytac's part in the final two years of the show during the Ori story arc. Here's an exclusive preview of this interview for GateWorld Podcast listeners. My enjoyment has always been to sort of switch hats, you know, to go from... You know, one genre to another genre. Oh, no, okay, Stargate, no, let's go do Blow, no, let's, oh, let's do a play, let's, you know. I've always enjoyed the variety. That's been my, uh, my uh, uh, fondest uh, comfort zone is that. GateWorld's new interview with Tony Amendola will be online later this week. The main discussion. Our main topic of discussion this week is the latest episode of Stargate Atlantis, which aired on Friday, September 26th, First Contact, which saw the return of Michael Shanks to Atlantis. Michael hasn't been in Atlantis since the original pilot, Rising. Yeah, and he didn't, if memory serves, have much of any interaction with Rodney in Rising. Yeah, there was there was plenty of interaction in the uh, in the the scene when they were trying to figure out how they were going to get to Atlantis, but not a lot. You're right. Yeah, a big group of them around the table there with Jack and and Doctor Weir. But this was a great opportunity to see the two the two nerds, the two fast talkers from both shows, get together and really bounce off each other in a way that they never have before. I thought it That's was right. a great episode. I was not disappointed in the least. And you know, these first first parters of the of the two parter end up obviously always doing lots and lots of setup and then you get lots of payoff. And one of our favorite episodes from last year was Be All My Sins Remembered, which was the payoff episode, the the part two. Yes. For a part one, I thought first contact was really strong. It had everything that we were hoping and a lot of things that um, to be honest, I wasn't really expecting to be as cool as they were. Yeah, you know, I, I uh, deliberately go out of my way to avoid spoilers for, for episodes, and I don't know what kind of spoilers were released beforehand. I knew vaguely that Danny and uh, Rodney were going to get captured, but other than that, I had no idea going in, and it was just a real wild romp. It was a lot of fun, there was a lot of action, there was a lot of banter. I think it set up a lot of stuff um, that... Um, 
consequence has not reached us yet, and it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see what happens in that second part, you know, with the Atero device and, um, you know, with, with uh, the Hive ship and the, the experimentation that's going on with the Wraith. It's going to be interesting. So, and of course, that new race, that new mysterious race, and Joel created a great score for them, bombastic mm-hmm. and you know mysterious. And it—that's it, one of the things about Joel's score is you, you immediately know that they are bad. You immediately know that there is something going on here, and they are not to be trifled with. Now, what I really hope is that the bad guys play a significant part in the Atlantis universe because they were when they were originally conceived of the producers said well these guys are going to be a significant new foe they're not going to be necessarily like a one-off like the alternate reality bad guys that we saw in Daedalus variations mm-hmm. uh, but then the show got cancelled obviously so we've got the Lost Tribe next week and you and I have speculated a bit that they might be the enemy at the gate that's coming in the in the season finale but we don't know that mm-hmm. for sure um, so we don't really know if we're, if we're going to see these guys again if maybe maybe we're going to have to wait until one of the Atlantis movies to see them again. Um, but, At which point, if they do appear in a movie, I hope they don't finish them off. Yeah. You know, the movies seem to be really good about finishing off favorite villains, you know, and no. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think they've reached that point yet of being favorite villains. They're cool, they have cool suits and really cool technology, and they made quick work of of Atlantis's shields and, and everything that we threw at them in their their surgical strike, but um, I think it's going to be Lost Tribe next week that they're we're really going to figure out who these guys are, what role they're playing in in the Atlantis mythology and in the larger Stargate mythology, uh, yeah. and why we've never heard of them before. We've we've been in Pegasus Galaxy for five years, and we've hardly seen anybody who's more technologically advanced than you know the Janai, who are at a yeah. at a level of about 1940s. United States. And I happen to know in the Lost Tribe they are given a name. Oh, yeah? Yep, so I'm very happy about that. Because <laughs> all these, so many of these really cool races, you know, we can't identify them. We have to go with that one from uh, Daedalus Variations, you know? Yeah, Foothold Aliens. Foothold Aliens. The medieval Christian lizard. <laughs> Long story. So I think the bad guys is one of the elements of first contact that I liked the most that I thought really worked and I was a little worried at first that I don't know they were going to be maybe too much like the Breen from Deep Space Nine because they Mm. they sort of have that look that encounter suit look but their technology the the ship uh, that shot of the ship appearing over the ocean through hyperspace I thought that was one of the coolest visual effects that Atlantis has ever done yeah, that wasn't what something that I was expecting, you know. We, we've never seen an in-atmosphere hyperspace window before, and it actually sucks all the air towards it, and that was really neat. And another one of my favorite characters from Season 1 uh, was Janice. And even though we didn't uh, get to see him in this episode, a lot of what he was working on has repercussions. His, his goodies are back. His research is back. Yeah, you know? I would have been really disappointed, I think, if Atlantis had gone out without revisiting Janice again. Because his history uh, as an inventor, as an inventor of of rather controversial technology, uh, remember this was the guy who we saw in season one's Before I Sleep who invented the time-traveling puddle jumper. Uh, 
this this is a pretty significant part of Atlantis's history and of who the ancients were before they reached ascension. Uh, I'm really glad that we got to revisit him again. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense, you know. In in recent years on Stargate, there's been this theme of of creating devices which destroy our enemies, you know. So it made sense to go back to Janus and uh, explore some more of his past. His lab and what we found there and how we got to it, I think, paid off one of the things that I've been wanting most for Atlantis. When the show was first conceived and first launched in 2004, uh, we were told, you know, the city is going to be uh, basically another character. We're going to spend a, a ton of time exploring what's in this ancient city that got left behind. And the result of that was just sort of, you know, occasionally you get an episode like Dow of Rodney or uh, Hot Zone in season one, where it's just sort of we're wandering around the corridors of some building and find something that gets us into trouble. We stumble across uh, ancient technology that is incredibly dangerous that they forgot to post a sign outside the door. But this, I mean, finding Janice's lab, this this seems like a, a lot more in line with what I originally wanted in exploring Atlantis and finding what was out there. Well, you know, at the beginning of season three of Atlantis, um, which is technically in uh, in the episode The Pegasus Project on SG-1, uh, Weir reveals that they've charted just over 50% of the city, mm-hmm. you know. So by season six of Atlantis, they should more or less have seen everything. So, yeah, it's 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 important that we get episodes like this out, you know. And it has been one of my disappointments in Atlantis that that the city has not actually taken on a life of its own. It doesn't exactly have a voice, mm. which is something I always wanted for it. It doesn't have personality. It doesn't have moods. It's more or less just a base. And it's something that I hope that they, that they consider exploring. But uh, it's really nice to see the consequences of our actions on the city, you know. I mean, we haven't, we haven't been good to it. In terms of in terms of keeping it safe, we've 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 drawn danger to it, and the, mm-hmm. like flooded levels are really cool in my opinion. That we that we see that that there are still consequences. Yeah, you had a really cool idea, and I don't think it's been in the podcast before. I think that this was just a conversation that we had about about the city having a voice uh, in terms of of the the holographic chamber. Tell us about that. I was originally when uh, when Atlantis first started, we we were given the impression that the Hollow Room would play some kind of part in the series, and we've only been in it a couple of times. But when um, when Melia gave the story of Atlantis in the pilot, I assumed. I just assumed mm-hmm. that Melia would continue to be a part of Atlantis. That she was actually the holographic representation of Atlantis and that she was the personification of Atlantis and that we could go to her and ask questions. She would give status reports. She would perhaps come over the comm system and be Atlantis's voice. Atlantis has never had a voice. It has never had a personification. It's never been really given a soul. I, I haven't seen Andromeda. So I'm sure that I sound my idea sounds a little too Andromeda-like. Well, yeah, what I said to you when you brought up the idea was that it sounds like Lexa Dugue's character on Andromeda. There's a version of, of her that's basically the, the holographic ship interface that is the ship. And then there's a version of her that's, that's the android, that's the ship made flesh. Yeah, you know, it's just something, that's something that I always would have wanted to see on Atlantis, and it's, it's never happened. So, you know, it's... 
that's that's something that we could further discuss in a what if Atlantis podcast yeah. one of these days. But yeah, you know, when Atlantis ends next year, I would love to have sort of a of a what if. These are the uh, just to look back at the series overall and say these are the things we really loved and these are the things we wish they might have done. And this is one I think it's a it would have been a great idea to give Atlantis a voice and to use that that holographic interface as that voice um, where it's it's you know it's an active artificial intelligence it's not just a recording that somebody made mm-hmm. 10,000 years ago back to first contact yes uh, michael shanks is in this episode michael did a wonderful job as i expected he would he really did a bang up job um, it's great to see him back it's great to see the character back in atlantis um, and the the character hasn't changed at all. You know, he's he's exactly as he should be portrayed. You know, mm-hmm. especially uh, as a foil for Rodney McKay. Michael knows exactly who Daniel Jackson is. Obviously, it's it's like slipping on a, a an old pair of slippers. And he, I think, what's the interesting challenge for Michael coming into this is he knows that character. He's played him for what eleven years, including the movies mm-hmm. and. Um, he comes into somebody else's show. This is a different cast. It's it's kind of a different world. He's he's got this familiar character that he wears like a glove, and he he's interacting with totally different people. So you got the crossover element here that I, I thought he just he did a terrific job. This is obviously the Daniel that we know and love, uh, and seeing him and Rodney work together, I think was was just fantastic. Is that a water line up there? Yeah, this section of the city flooded the first year we were here. Anything salvageable? Got moved to the main tower. Well, that's remote. That's promising. He wouldn't want anyone around when he came in and out of his lab. Ooh, like the Bat Cave. Yes, just like the Bat Cave. Well, I'm not picking up anything unusual. Something used to be attached here. Hmm, and here. And another one. Any idea what they are? It's like a run of the mill sconce interface. Right, well, where are the sconces? I don't know, maybe the decorator changed his mind. You said after the flood, anything worth salvaging was moved to the main tower. Now, please tell me you kept detailed records of what was found and where. Did we keep detailed records? Who are you talking to here? I loved in uh, Chad's interview, recent interview with Michael, how Michael says that when he's walking down the hallway and he sees uh, Keller and Ronan, he dismisses them because he doesn't know who they are and he figures that they're just, they're just minor players in Atlantis operations, you know. Um, and that was very appropriate as far as I was concerned, you know. I thought that that was a great touch because he doesn't know them. He has he has no reason to know them. It's been brought up on the forum that, you know, those times that David Hewlett appeared on Stargate SG-1, he and and Daniel never had much interaction. David was in 48 Hours in Season 5 right. and had zero contact with Daniel. Daniel went off to Russia. Uh, and then he came back for the two-parter to start off season six, Redemption. And of course, Michael wasn't on the show anymore at that point. In terms of SG-1 crossovers, Rodney has always been a foil for, for Sam. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to see this interplay exercised. Yeah. In Mar- some cases, it's been a long time coming. Martin Garrow with this episode, and I thought he, he did a really great job identifying uh, Daniel's strengths and abilities as an archaeologist and Rodney's abilities as a scientist and a techno nerd because you yeah. get it, what what Daniel contributes to this is he he identifies oh there's something going on here at the end of the hallway and he he looks in the records the historical records of Atlantis and Janus and Janus's assistant um, and then he he discovers well these 
these old sconces are missing. So he's, you know, on an artifact hunt. He's being an archaeologist in the middle of this advanced city. And then, when they get that far, then Rodney's able to take over and kind of figure out technologically what's going on. So I thought they worked it's, together really well. Their their talents were well met. Yeah, it's a perfect fit, you know? And we know that Daniel has been looking at the Atlantis database since it came back to Stargate Command in uh, the beginning of Season 9 of That's SG-1. He's, yeah, there's, a, there's a scene where he cites the Atlantis database talking, I think, about about Merlin and whatever Merlin's old name was, Murios or something like that. Uh, yeah. Having yeah, come back from Atlantis. Uh, he's actually looking through the, the final Atlantis manifest, which supposedly included Alma de Sala and, uh, and a couple of the others. Well, there's a B story also going on. Um, what did you think of Todd and the advancement of the Wraith storyline over on board the Daedalus? I thought some of the dialogue between Keller and Todd was very poignant and and you pointed this out in our notes here you know mm-hmm. the wraith the wraith apparently consider themselves just to be slayers of men you know and they and Todd asks you know if if we no longer hunt what would we do and who would we be you know it's kind of sad to hear a wraith saying that you know that, that it's it's only drive is to sustain itself he, he kind of sounds like a replicator you know, it's it's only it's only purpose is to procreate, but um, you know, I, I yeah. think the wraith are worthy of of becoming a, a species that no longer uh, requires t- uh, to survive by destroying its um, by by slaughtering humans. You know, I think I think it's worthy of a culture that uh, that can that can create art and can sustain itself. Yeah, this line by Todd, uh, he's he's in that that scene with Keller where they're going over the data and she's got an ability to basically make it so that the wraith don't have to feed on humans anymore to live and he says uh, if if we if we go through with this what would we do who would we be yeah and todd man todd's now a a philosopher in addition to a scientist and a crafty leader well, he's he is a leader, you know. He's trying to be he's trying to become one, and I think it's important that he asks these kinds of questions. You know, yeah. I mean, if all the wraith are 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 terrorists who who feed and drain the life out of human beings, then you know, I think that that makes a pretty that makes a pretty boring enemy. You know, so I think it's it's cool that they ask these kinds of questions. That the wraith are, become a little bit um, introspective. We haven't seen anybody but Todd on the wraith side who is capable of even asking this question. I mean, the, the rate that we've seen for the most part, they are the, the scary, fang-bearing villains, uh, almost mustache-twirling. They're, they're painted in very black-and-white terms, and Todd has been such a fantastic character, I think, because he asks, he's capable of asking these sorts of questions and of being more of a, of a gray villain. I mean, he's been our ally for the most part up until this point when he's he turns on us now and, and has taken control of the Daedalus. But yeah, it's, it's when, a, when a species reaches this point where it can ask these sorts of questions about its identity and its existence. Who are we? Who would we be if this happened? Uh, are we not fundamentally about uh, these uh, erratus bug creatures that are in our DNA that latch on to other beings and feed off their life force? If that's not fundamentally who we are, even though it's encoded into our DNA what what sort of a people are we to become and that's the first step toward change 
you know, to ask that question. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes, you know? Yeah, and as enemies, I think once a species gets there, you can no longer talk about defeat in terms of eradication. You can't wipe them out like we wiped out the replicators. I have moral issues with uh, the genocide of the replicators when there were replicators out there. Sure, they could be reprogrammed, but there were replicators out there that were trying to uh, exceed the sum of their parts. Yeah, cast off their destructive nature. You know mm-hmm. that to this day, as as well with me, is one of those. It's one of those uh, uncomfortable things to think about that we did that we did to them. We basically annihilated them. I don't, and and it's it's been a hard thing for me to swallow. You know, I don't I don't care how 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 much trouble we would have been in had they been around. You know, I mean, we have to ask ourselves what kind of a race do we want to be. Mm-hmm. But that's an, again another topic. <laughs> and what does it say? What does it say of us if we are willing to commit genocide? Uh, to go back to what may seem to be a totally random episode, Summit from season five of Stargate SG One. Jack and Jacob Carter are having this conversation about why the Tok'ra aren't being more aggressive in taking on and taking out the Ghoul. Like SG One has been knocking off System Lords. And Jacob has this really chilling line to Jack. He, he says, we've got the symbiote poison now. We've got a plan. Uh, we're going to wipe them out. We're going to wipe them all out. And mm-hmm. and then the, the, the scene ends, I think, with just playing off Jack's face. It's, it's a chilling thing to hear Jacob say, we're, we are planning to commit genocide against the Gould. Because the Jaffa are in the line of fire as well. And that's, that's something that I think Atlantis lacks um, uh, that dynamic, you know, where, where there's there's really no collateral damage in any of our battle strategies, um, you know, and the Jaffa, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously the Jaffa it, are are intimately connected to the gold. The the stuff on the Daedalus with Todd, I thought it was that part of the episode was much much more set up. I think in the Lost Tribe we're gonna get hopefully a lot more payoff that helps that. Mitch Pileggi had some great stuff. Bob Picardo, of course, had some great stuff. Today is an historic day. Ah, cut the crap. Let's get on with it. You know, he just he just does that so well. He's not a he's not a very good diplomat. You know, when it comes to the wraith, and mm-hmm. uh, I think I, I I loved those those exchanges between Keller and and Mitch Pileggi's character Stephen Caldwell. Can't wait to see part two. I can't wait to uh, to see more of the bad guys and more of of the technology that Janice has cooking up. He's, he's got this Atero device that uh, basically messes up the Wraith's hyperspace technology so that, obviously, as we saw, when, when a Wraith ship tries to enter hyperspace, it just gets blown apart. Pulverized. Yeah, that f- it messes up their frequency. What a great idea. Very innovative. But it has a, a major side effect that I don't think was revealed in this episode. Yeah, it was. The, uh, the Stargate blowing up. Oh, our Stargate in Atlantis blowing up? It messes with wormhole frequencies, too. So that was supposed to be a connection? I didn't necessarily see that connection between what happened to the Atlantis Stargate. McKay brought it up. He said it's not going to be a problem for us. He said it was a problem for the rest of the galaxy, including Atlantis. And boy, as soon as they tried to connect, the the Stargate self-destructed. Hmm. Whatever whatever signal it is that 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 device emits, that's a that's a perfectly legitimate reason for not using it. You know, because any wormhole that connects in the galaxy implodes. 
So I wonder, is it is it anybody, as long as this device is active, anybody in the Pegasus galaxy who tries to turn on a Stargate, their Stargate blows up? I think that's the scary thing about it. You know, Janus was running these tests, and it, I don't. I, I wonder how it's. It took him just a couple of days to figure out just how catastrophic mm-hmm. uh, uh, a device he built. I didn't realize that that's what was going on. I'd, I'd read some spoilers for Lost Tribe, and I knew that there was that connection, but I didn't. I didn't make the connection when I was watching First Contact. I thought that really? when they had tried to dial up the Stargate, that maybe there was an incoming wormhole. And somebody had attacked their Stargate the way that Anubis attacked the SGC gate in Redemption. No, that didn't occur to me at all. Hmm. I, I knew I was looking for a side effect and something to do with subspace. And hyperspace conduits exist in subspace. And wormholes exist in subspace. It made perfect sense to me. It was a very rational connection as far as I was concerned. That that would be, that that would be a, a very potential threat. Hmm. I guess you're quicker than me. So David, how would you grade First Contact overall? I would give it a 9.5 out of 10. It was an exceptional episode. Um, Very, very typical in terms of uh, a two-part, more money thrown in, shoot them up. You know, it it had the right balance of of moral questions and action and drama and adventure, a little bit of play between the love triangle. And, you know, it just just covered everything really well, you know, a lot like Be All My Sins Remembered in that respect. Uh Mm-hmm. And I hope that Lost Tribe is equally impressive. I thought for a part one, the setup of this was a lot stronger than a lot of part ones that we've seen in Stargate history. There was a lot going on. There was some terrific character interaction, especially between Rodney and Daniel. There was some terrific uh, development in the Wraith story arc. I think it was just one of those episodes that really fires on all thrusters. And there's not really much of anything to complain about in this one. I'd give it a, I'd give it a 9 out of 10. Yeah. Very cool. Listener mail. In our last podcast, we asked you to call in and write in and tell us what you think of crossover episodes in Stargate. We have some mail. Mac Jackson is first up. I adore crossover episodes. It reminds me of being a kid and watching the Justice League when you get to see Batman, Superman, and others on a team together. Stargate has been wonderful about making sure we know both shows are part of the same universe. There is nothing like seeing such strong personalities coming together and interacting. It fuels the imagination. A lot of questions get answered, and a lot of excitement comes from those episodes. Now let's see, is Rodney McKay Batman or Superman? Hmm. Or is he maybe more like uh, Robin? He mentions the Batcave, so... <laughs> That's complete true. coincidence there. Yeah, we planned that. Quaid One writes, I haven't liked a single crossover episode yet. I don't know why, but I think it may be the characters being out of their element that throws off whatever it is, the acting, directing. For some reason, they just don't work. I have to disagree. I think Daniel was completely in his element, other other than being like knocked around by Rodney. I'm thinking about the crossover episodes that both shows have done so far. I I can't really think of any that I didn't like. Yeah, and you know, I mean, the best crossover episode, in my opinion, was the Pegasus Project, and I think that's mentioned next in this uh, in this uh, piece here. Wildstar 073. 
I think the greatest crossover episode ever was in Season 10 of SG-1, The Pegasus Project. We get to see the two teams, at least most of the Atlantis characters, working together to solve a common problem for Stargate Command and Atlantis. This results in an amazing victory against both the Wraith and the Ori. I love the banter between Carter and McKay, and also the lemon scene with Mitchell and McKay is priceless. Pegasus Project, I think, stands on top of the crossover episodes. It is in the top ten heap of my favorite SG-1 episodes. Very well done. And finally, Mary writes and says, I'm not sure there has been a thoroughly successful crossover episode yet. I think Pegasus Project was the best for SG-1, just because we got to see a little Mitchell and Vala interaction with Rodney and Shepard. And the episode was great without the crossover aspect. For Atlantis, Grace Under Pressure is one of my favorite episodes, and actually got me to start watching SG-1 because of how strong Sam's character was. Yeah, you know, that's that's an important element of crossover episodes, you know, to get you interested in a character that you don't normally see to carry you over into another series. Well, we have a couple other pieces of mail on other topics. Teacher Gal writes in about our discussion of Tracker in the last podcast. She says, One of my biggest beefs with the series, and I love Atlantis, is the inconsistency with McKay. One show, he's handling a P90 like a pro and is standing up to the enemy, and the next he's a coward, running and hiding, or firing his gun in the air. I find that both Carl Binder and Robert Cooper write the bumbling comic relief McKay way too often in their stories, and that choice detracts from their shows. I'd like to know the episode that uh, Teacher Gal is referring to, where uh, Rodney handles a P90 like a pro. Yeah, I think he definitely does it better in some episodes than others. Hmm. I wonder if there's a if there's a comparable episode to uh, the one you mentioned for Daniel uh, enemies where he's running and gunning. Adam says, "I must say I'm missing Zelenka. Not only does he not seem to be getting as much airtime, but the airtime he does get is different. Rodney was always a jerk to him, but it always came off as a semi-friendly thing." But in the last season or so, it feels more negative. It feels like Rodney hates him. And then in some seasons, for episodes like Trio and Quarantine, where you had characters openly making fun of him, what do you guys think? I have to agree. I think that it was a little shocking the way that Zelenka seemed to be the the butt of the joke in Trio when when Carter was you know shivering about having had to get stuck in an elevator with him with a in a transport chamber with him. The relationship that I like to see between Rodney and Zelenka goes back to episodes like um, The Return Part 1, where they're all getting ready to go back to Earth uh, mm-hmm. because the ancients have, have kicked them out of the city. And there's mm-hmm. this you know really nice little scene between Rodney and Raddick and uh, Carson. And they're saying, well, what are you guys going to do when we go back to Earth? And, and the, that's the sort of relationship that I would like to see. And Zelenka, obviously we like to see Rodney prickly and... and and Kurt, but yeah, I think they're too mean to poor Zelenka. You know, I, that he's he is a supporting character, I know, but I I don't think he should always behave like a supporting character. I mean, I've 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 watched him for for five seasons now, and I'm a little sick of him playing Rodney's bitch. Uh, <laughs> can I say that word? Sure. Okay, but it, that's what it seems like, you know. I mean, I. I know that Zelenka probably has projects of his own, and I'd, I'd like to see him grow as a character as well. You know, there there has not really been a lot of character growth for him in terms of his profession. He's always been in Rodney's shadow. We also have a couple of voicemails on the GateWorld podcast hotline. Let's listen to those. Hi, my name is Edward Monroe. I'm from Nova Scotia. 
um, Halifax to be exact. Um, I am not pleased with your Stargate's cancellation. The only thing I watch TV for, I got, t I got cable now, the only thing I watch it for is Stargate, and I guess I'll be getting rid of that now, um, just after the, uh, after the two-hour episode there. I'm going to uh, get rid of my cable. No sense having cable no more. Um, I am very disappointed. Um, it actually bothers me. Um, I, I don't make any long-distance calls at all, but I figured this one deserved it. Long live Stargate Atlantis. Howdy, Darren Day. This is Matthew Darcy. I'm from uh, Houston, Texas. I could just uh, kind of obliterate this with electricity and entertainment and cable and Internet. I've at least been able to keep busy with one thing, and that's been the Stargate franchise, and this has been really awesome. I've, I've loved it my whole life. I got that whole uh, season just with, with, you know, wanting to have it, have it. And now I'm, I've gone through uh, almost the entire 10 seasons. I've really enjoyed the show. It's got me through a lot of stuff overseas uh, and, and experiences like this where you've got electricity but just no, nothing else to get out of the air and nothing out of the cable. So thank you again. Thanks to you guys for calling in and for everyone who wrote in or posted on the forum this week. Here's this week's listener question. We want you to watch The Lost Tribe this Friday night and then call the podcast hotline or post on the forum and tell us what you think of these new bad guys and their secret identity. Is it a good move to bring in this race or not? Coming up on the podcast, of course, next week, October 14th, we're talking about The Lost Tribe. And then on the 21st, we'll talk about Outsiders. On October 28th, it's Inquisition. Thanks for joining us once again for this week's podcast. We'd love to hear from you on the GateWorld Podcast Hotline. Just call 616-712-1647. Give us an answer to this week's listener question or just tell us uh, anything you want to about Stargate or about this podcast. You can also post a GateWorld forum on the podcast feedback thread. In this episode, we talked about First Contact, the newest episode of Stargate Atlantis, and we gave you a preview of our interview with Tony Amendola. For links to everything we talked about today, head over to GateWorld and look for the episode number 13 show notes. From GateWorld.net, this is Darren Sumner. And I'm David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. <laughs>